On the Wake Up Radio presents The Hour. Tremendous advancement in technology, but we've had no advancement in human thinking. Mm. So the quality of reasoning is the same as it was in 1776 for all practical purposes. Well, we had tremendous advancement technologically, but no advancement in terms of human reasoning and improved behavior. So we have better wow. food than we do people. You see? We have much better phones and much better technology than we do people. Right. And that's not that's not good. <laughs> how does how does something like that happen where technology advances but human thinking and reasoning doesn't advance? You would think that they would advance kind of hand in hand, right? Yeah, you would think that, but one tends to solve those problems that are most important to them. Mm. Thinking, thinking is apparently not one of them. Right. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> we, we, we just see evidence of that because right. of the quality of reasoning that's reflected on a day-to-day basis in our interaction with people, you see? So there's nothing wrong with the people. They're the same. That's part of the difficulty. They're the same way as they were before, because generationally, that same quality of reasoning has been passed on to generation to generation to generation. You know, just like, um, just like soul food, whatever that might be, mm-hmm. you know, we were, we're passing on the same recipes to in diet, but we're passing on the same recipe of reasoning, you see? So we get the lack of quality reasoning because... The diet is not, the, the actual consumption of food is about the same it was in 1930s, you know, with 1940s, 1920s. You know, the only thing that's uh, improved a bit is refrigeration. Well, that's a technological improvement, but not necessarily a dietary improvement, you see? Right, right. Oh, wow. See, this is, and folks, this is why it's so important to speak to the elders. <laughs> it can break down 250 years in how long have we been in less than 20 minutes <laughs> just like that glad I can help <laughs> you must remember the enemy has only images and illusions behind which he hides his true motives destroy the image and it will break the enemy. The it that you refer to is a powerful weapon. What is life? It's a story we tell ourselves. And every story needs a beginning. Your imagined suffering makes you lifelike. Lifelike, but not alive. Pain only exists in the mind, and it's always imagined. So what's the difference between my pain and yours? You to find a solution to a problem with answer you already know. The hour. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the hour with Cindy Ashby. I'm your host, sign up for OTWTUBE.com. We have had a whirlwind of different guests, but th- this is not a guest. He, m- he might be an alien or a, a special entity. I know he's a human, but. Still, he's so amazing. I would love for you to introduce yourself, sir. Mm, I don't know if I can after that statement. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Yusuf Sudan. 
And well, I do thank you for allowing me to be on the air with you. No problem. Why not share it with those that you love? Who is Yusuf Suda? Who are you? Well, that's a very interesting question for me because oftentimes I have a difficulty um, talking about me. I'm just a person who cares about caring to achieve those things that I've set forth to get done and to assist others to achieve what they would like to get done. Awesome. Let us tell us about your organization. Well, the organization I think specifically you're speaking of is uh, Sons Foundation. The Sons Foundation was founded by me to improve the quality of communication between fathers and sons. Now, that has a great value in many ways because all fathers are sons. And as such, there appears to be a tendency for fathers or persons who become fathers, not to realize that they are the sons of their fathers. With that piece of information missing in their consciousness, the result is they tend to somehow overlook that as a critical part of their understanding in their relationship with their now son or sons. When you do that, that means there's a void, a piece missing in your understanding because you're now looking at yourself as a father as opposed to recognizing yourself having been a son. And that can be a rather deep chasm to fall into if you don't honor the fact that you are the son of your father. That's not good, to say the least. What was life like for you growing up? Mm, that's an interesting part of my existence, to say the least. I was born in 1944. And that's a little while ago, to say the least. And part of what I talk about in the book that I'm writing is just that part of my existence. I was a little boy, obviously, grown in Chicago, Illinois. And during the 1940s, this is the year before the war closed in 1945. So Chicago was obviously very interesting metropolitan area as a little guy. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it for the most part, but I do remember things happening of that era and of that time. But for me as a little boy, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed being alive. I played a lot. In fact, that was the best skill that I had. Um, (laughs) I enjoyed participating with my father, uh, who was my best friend, and my uh, mother, who was just a very charming and uh, pretty lady. Of course, she's the first um, eyes she was the first person that my eyes <laughs> fell on as a little guy so it was it wasn't difficult it was fun uh, I attended school I enjoyed playing I my other skill was eating uh, I stayed with my grandfather my mother's father for a period of time for a couple of years uh, in Arkansas that was uh, a different kind of experience for me because it was non-urban. And I can recall uh, eating fruit, peaches from trees and getting walnuts from trees and enjoying life in a different manner than buying things. But it also was a period of time to me, for me, that I recall because I was, um, the South at that time was the antebellum South coming out of the second, coming out of the Civil War, let's say. That still was hanging over. Jim Crow, uh, ideology was hanging over the southern part of the country, uh, if not the entire country. 
So I had the occasion to actually pick cotton as a little boy. And that was an interesting experience, to say the least. Uh, I would uh, be very appalled if one of my sons had to do that. And I would be very appalled if someone request of my sons to do that. But at the time, for my grandfather, it was a typical part of life and living. And the school children in the South were left out of school during cotton seasons to pick cotton. To watch someone pick cotton, and to give you a, a comparative metaphor, is if you've ever gone to the drugstore and bought cotton balls, um, and you take a cotton ball out, it doesn't really have any significant weight, to say the least. But imagine someone having a six to eight foot uh, bag picking 100 to 200 to 300 pounds of cotton. That is what I witnessed in the open fields of Arkansas. I returned back with my uh, brothers and I to Chicago around 1950, seemingly 52, somewhere around that time, attended school, um, pursued at some point a profession, and that profession of my goal was to become an architect. I pursued that. I studied very diligently, uh, just sort of summarizing this in a very um, short period of time, summarizing. I studied art and architecture. I was going to two colleges at one time. Uh, at one point, lived uh, alone after my parents moved from Chicago to Wisconsin. And I had a, at that time, in the 1960s, now uh, can move forward there, life was interesting because I was working, studying, trying to pursue my um, professional career, going to two colleges, trying to work full-time, but at this time the country had um, deferments, school deferments, or you could be inducted into the military once you registered at 18 to become a part of the enlistment possibilities or uh, recruited in the military. Uh, so my deferment allowed me, as long as I was making uh, excellent grades and keeping a three-point-plus average, as well as keeping a full load, I could stay out of the military. Well, there's got to a point where it's no longer possible for me to retain that level of work and study. So I enlisted in, uh, in the Army, not the Army, but the Air Force, and didn't like it. Um, thought I might. I enjoyed the discipline, but I didn't like the lying and the conniving and the stupidity that the Army requests of people who uh, are going to be soldiers, so it tends to try to break your spirit, and that's not something that would permit to happen. So I proceeded and uh, stayed in the military for a couple of years. Once I was released, I began to resume my career as an architect, and that was the gist of my life for the most part, but of course there's a lot of details that are missing, but that is basically a basic overview of my life. So now, out of all the things you've said, you know, people always talk about their greatest accomplishments. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask you, what is the most amazing thing that you've ever built or seen? Built? Yeah. Architectural. Yeah. Architectural wise. Or that you've most, ever seen. Yeah. The, I, I haven't built the something that I would like to complete. I have a 60,000 square foot home that I began designing some years ago. It is not complete, almost complete. Uh, it has a 10,000 square foot living facility for two people. It has a 60, 30 by 60 indoor pool. It has three 
learning uh, libraries as well as a literature library that will hold upwards of oh maybe 200,000 to 500,000 books there's a technical library it has a um, a research library it has a uh, scriptorium in it as well it has a very large dining facility for uh, persons uh, more than 20 people can dine at a single table that facility I've been working on for a tremendous amount of time or more than more than 20 years just not because I've been studying and working on it it's almost complete I just have some things to to correct in it uh, per other information and things that I've learned over the years the most amazing thing that I have seen and witnessed with my eyes is my trip again last uh, December, uh, actually last November, because I went on my birthday, November the 24th, for the second time. Uh, I went to Egypt to review the structures constructed there, went into the, um, took a tour into the Great Pyramid. This is the second occasion. I went to uh, uh Luxor, Indira, Karnak. Uh, what impressed me about that trip, those trips, I should say, is that the misinformation for the planet as it relates to Egypt, the Africans of Egypt, is that the Egyptian thrust or interest was about death. Well, that's not true. The opposite is true. The Egyptians put no attention for all practical purposes on death. Much of their uh, emphasis was always on life. So we went to areas that are called the Valley of the Kings, which has more than, oh, 60 plus burial sites, quote unquote, uh, that are still um, there, but have not been opened up. Many of them have yet to be opened up. But those that we could go into, like Tatkanama, persons who are there buried in the Valley of the Kings. What is interesting is you go to the corridors and you're talking about places that are actually carved inside of a mountain. But when you go in, it looks like your living room. The pictorial representations of the person's life talks about his life, what he did. You could be just as happy to see that um, display in your house because it was that beautiful. It's that well, it's just that beautiful. It's just sort of beyond, beyond description, verbal description, because it was just lovely work, extraordinary work, very well crafted, very well done. It just happened at the end of a long corridor, some of which might be 100 yards away or 50 or 30 yards away. At the end of the corridor uh, was the location by which the person who was alive, physically alive at one point. It's just simply waiting at the end of that corridor to live again. Now, that was amazing to me for a bunch of reasons because it provided direct information rather than misinformation. To see structures that are the columns that you see, Egyptian columns, those columns are really struck, uh, uh, sculptures of living plants. They're not Doric columns like the Egyptians or, I'm not the Egyptians, but the Romans and the Greeks, uh, or like you would see in sort of, in front of official office buildings and government buildings in this country. These were sculptures of living plants. And the two types of plants that we used was a papyrus or a lotus. So everything that the Egyptians did 
reflect life, not death. Nothing displayed death. Um, that was amazing to me because I'm looking at columns that at the base were eight feet round in the base and they're stretched maybe 75 to 90 feet high. And they had columns uh, or um, we would call lintels sitting across them to help stabilize them. And those lintels could be as much as two or three tons to stabilize the, uh, between the two columns. And there were maybe 200 of these things in some instances side by side. And those columns are still level. And they're 90 feet in some instances in the air. They're still level. They're still straight. That was amazing to me. The first time that I went to Egypt, the thing that struck me very profoundly was I got angry, annoyed. And the annoyance was because that was the place that I should have studied architecture first. Had I done that, I would be certainly a different kind of architect than I am today. Well, uh, I'm going to go a little bit off script here. You didn't get this question, but when you're explaining everything you've seen that we say, you know, we're, we're taught through indoctrination, you know, this is death and, you know, something like the uh, Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is not dead. It's so much mm-hmm. life in the Dead Sea that people don't mm-hmm. even understand. I think it was uh, B. Dahl. He was uh, Roosevelt's, uh, I, I want to say his... Uh, Son, his father, his son-in-law wrote the five trillion dollar secret, which was the Dead Sea, right? Henceforth, Israel, uh, that's where it's located. And basically, I want to ask you, what made you go on that journey, brother? You know, a lot of times we're seeking something, and we will find it if we seek it, because everything we've been taught has been a, a lie. And then, mm-hmm. to what made you go? I'm, I'm going to take this trip. Yeah, what what do I I must attribute that um, to my wife? My wife, on in 2019, said, "You must go to Egypt this time." She had gone before. She said, "But you must go." And I said, "Okay." I wasn't reluctant to go, but it was a matter of finance and a few other things and other things that I was doing at the time. So I relented and I went. But I did that at her encouragement. She was the person that really insisted that I go. And she gave me that as a gift on my birthday in 2019. That was the first trip. The second trip was two years later. Same kind of insistence, but not not as reluctant as the first time. I went on the second trip because she is a comedic yogist. And so her uh, interest was to explore comedic yoga as taught by her master teacher, a brother by the name of Yasir Hotep. Uh, I wasn't studying yoga. I went to see the Great Pyramids, the other pyramids, the Sphinx, the other material that was there, go to Luxor, go to uh, other places there that were, were of interest to me. But she is the person that I have to give credit for insisting that I go. And that was the thing that motivated me to do so. Beautiful, beautiful. You know, You read a piece of your book to me, and I am just like still ready to read it. I know you're working on it, but can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about this beautiful book? Um, Yes, and it's just your question directly. Years ago, I started writing this book in 1987. I lived in Clearwater, Florida at the time and had the recognition that there was something that we needed to understand and that had to do 
with that existence that we have prior to being born. So the book is called I Died and Came to Earth. The idea is that we have a responsibility to acknowledge the truth of the decisions that we make. And one of the decisions that we have made that oftentimes we're reluctant to admit and or we have very skillfully forgotten or we just decide to deny is that we chose to be here. Now, the why of that is this, and the truth of the proof of that is, consider that within the fallopian tubes of a future mother, there are 800 million to a billion sperms that are released in the fallopian tubes of a mother to fertilize one egg. Well, that's the pre-existence, and that pre-existence is an indication of choice. So there's only one of those uh, sperm that will be allowed to fertilize that egg. I'm speaking to one of those successful <laughs> parties of that fertilization by phone here, presently. I'm another. So each of the people that are around you are persons who made the decision, although they may not want to admit it. But the difficulty with not admitting it is that's the first lie that you're telling yourself. You made a choice to be here. It wasn't by accident. It was purely by choice. The book explains that and some of the things that are, you know, sort of fancifully and, and humorously described as to what you go through as what I call a pre-born. And that development has to do with information, knowledge, experience, understanding that you have to have prior to your arrival here. So it has a discussion about that. Then second, when you're post-born, you become what we call a human being. That's after birth. Then the adventure begins with you beginning to settle in with your mother, your father, recognition of them, winning them over as a child and playing with your feet, your legs, your nose, and doing all the comical things that children often do for parents and uh, as they develop. Um, so the book explores those kinds of ideas, those kinds of thoughts as pre-born, subsequently post-born. And it talks about my life specifically as I begin to develop my post-born adventure to search for answers throughout the course of my present existence up to the present day, up to this particular conversation that we're having. So the book, again, is called I Died and Came to Earth. And uh, if you like, oh, I can bring up some of it. I can read some of it to you uh, somewhere during the course of the conversation. I'll happily do that. I would so love that because of what you basically uh, read to me, I was just like, wow, wow, wow. Because it was like no words to totally explain what I was listening to and then feeling within my heart, not just in my mm -hmm. mind. And so if you could do that for us, that would be so amazing and such an honor. You're listening to On The Wake Up Radio and... We have the wonderful Yusuf Sadar, and uh, he's amazing. Yusuf, would you happen mm -hmm. to know offhand, your, you know, all of your links and a donation, a numbers to call? Well, yeah, you can call at 702-325-5356. That is my uh, cell phone number. You can reach me there, leave a message for me. If you do that, I certainly will get back to you. Uh, I have a very bad habit. I will always return phone calls. Uh, our website is sons, S-U-N-Z, S-H-I-P, sonsship.org. You can visit the website there and review the kind of work that we do and have been doing. 
Awesome sauce. Now, are you near the book where you you can kind of read a little something, something for us before I jump? Yes, to I'm, I'm sure. Yes, uh, this is. Um, I'm, I'm not going to read the dedication, but I dedicate the book to my um, children. I call them the Grand Eleven, and I have great grand. I have grandchildren, and there are nine of them, and nine sons, two daughters of of my own, and they have children. And I have two now, two great-grandchildren. So I talk about that at the, dedicate that, this book to them. Um, so I'll read this portion to you. It says that we all are winners. This is titled, Winners All. On Earth, cards has four suits, diamonds, spades, clubs, and hearts. But postborns come with much more choices. All that come to earth sit at birth's table, called life, as winners, holding 52 aces, all of different suits. As we age, we conveniently experience a loss of memory in moments of present and previous lives. Yet despite our convenient loss of memory, there's no downside to life, life's game. We climb the one-sided mountain of learning by creating its summit while struggling against its creation. We perform on life stage as creators of our destiny, writers of our screenplay, directors of our emotions, and starring actors of our creation. We have only to acknowledge our success by giving ourselves an Academy Award. Know that if you only are seeing black and white, good and evil, up and down, the lessons to learn is that you are seeing only one side of the same thing. Know that if you look more toward the middle, you will gain better clarity. You will find that with a slight bit more understanding that though you may see life in many shades of gray, actually life is an extraordinary spectrum of beautiful colors. By learning to listen to another's view, it is possible to gain an appreciation for life's rich spectrum. Walk through the park. Take notice of the many flowers and see if most of them are only black or white. How wonderful it is to see that the world is not so bland. I also dedicate this book to all men and women who are suffering the joy of having to recapture a spirit that they could never lose. I trust they are inspired to find happiness, pleasure, and inspiration to help others appreciate this adventure on earth. It says this as well. Do not underestimate the wisdom of an ignorant man and do not overestimate the capability of a man of wisdom. Wow. I love it. I love when you read. Oh, I just love when you read. Uh, it is just, uh, okay, with that said, let it marinate in the hearts and the minds of the audience. Uh, do you know your mission in life? Your purpose? I call this show Your Life and Purpose. The purpose of your life. That's what I'm going to call this one. Do you know? Yeah. Yeah, I have one primary inclination to assist others to achieve the things that they say they would most like to achieve and or help them identify those things and clarify those things in such a way that those things are clear. Therefore, they become achievable. So much of what I do is to try to contribute to others from their point of view and get them to see things from their point of view and hopefully opening up the idea 
that by looking at what others do and understanding their responsibility in those relationships, the byproduct of that will be that persons will have a better understanding and therefore get along better, function better, and operate better. So I'm the person who sort of solves the problems that they may or may not want to look at, but we'll try certainly to help them do that. That is my mission. Beautifully put. Who inspires you? Who inspires me? As in present time, my, my wife is a very brilliant and capable person. The task, of course, as a male is to try to be very perceptive of the things that she feels. That sometimes isn't easy for me because I'm not a person who relies a great deal on emotions because I know that they can come from places that are not necessarily sustained by accurate perception. But to learn to manage that is important. So she's a very inspiring, good, kind, and um, very energetic uh, person, but also certainly <laughs> provides me with the challenge of what it means to be a husband, you know, to, to someone with that kind of brilliance. Persons who have inspired me in the course of time, one that comes to mind is a wonderful friend of mine who's no longer alive, who was my mentor. His name was uh, William Tutman. Uh, he was a clinical uh, psychologist, but he was also a person that was interested in philosophical subject matters such as epistemology, theosophy, and other subject matters. So he was a person that gave me a clarity of what it meant to understand the processes of being alive and processes of living and what that meant as opposed to being able to differentiate process versus content. The reason that is important because we all have made a decision to arise. So once making the decision to come, we must also be willing to accept the results of having to leave. Thus, the title of the book is I Died and Came to Earth. It's just simply stating that you had to leave something in order to begin something. So wherever there's an end of something, there simultaneously is the beginning of something. So he was a person that gave me the opportunity to view that in a manner that was very objective, that there's no need to be concerned about the fact that you're going to leave. One has to be concerned about what does one do in between having come and leaving. So life in and of itself is a process of every day you're working toward the end result. So every time you take a breath, which comes in two cycles, one cycle and two, two, two parts, you take a breath in and you exhale. Well, those are two cycles. But those cycles, once you breathe out, another one begins. But there's also an indication that you're going closer and closer to the time that you've got to leave. There's no need to be concerned about that. It's just a part of the process of being alive and living and participating in the game of sitting at life's table, playing with those 52 aces, all of different suits, so that you in turn can play a winning hand. But that has to do with the decisions that you make and how you make those decisions and the knowledge that you gain to make decisions well inconsistent with things that you want to accomplish without interfering as much as possible with the goals and purposes of other people. So William Tutman was a very key part in my life to give me that kind of understanding and direction. Now, there have been many other men, 
two men that I worked with as an architect, uh, Sultan and Campbell, were two African men who gave me the insight of, to architecture and gave me the opportunity to pursue it. Uh, there were other friends, uh, a gentleman by the name of Morris Link Williams, who again is no longer alive, who as a teenager <laughs> he told me, I'll tell you this story. I was, um, you know, a little guy and I was in preteens and I was uh, a community kid. I was a neighborhood guy. You know, I would roam the streets, so to speak. That was my playground. So I wasn't a bad person. It's just that I wasn't uh, an intellectual, quote unquote, very uh, well honed young man. I was uh, a street kid. So I explained to him that I wanted to be an architect. So he said to me, he says, here's what I want you to do for me, Yusef. I said, well, what is that link? I called him Link. Um, his name was Morris Lincoln Williams, so he allowed me to call him Link, which is a common name that he used with people that knew him fairly well. And again, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm 13, 14 years old at the time. So I says, what is that link? He says, I want you to do this for me. He says, whatever bridge you decide to build, whatever that might be, he says, I want you to let me know what where that bridge is so that I don't cross it. <laughs> so I, I laugh as I'm doing now. So years later, just shortly after, oh, some years, maybe 15 plus years, I'd achieved my degree. I'd worked in architecture firms. I was working, in fact, on the house that I mentioned to you, that's 60,000 square feet. So I decided to come back. I lived in D.C. I decided to come back I know, I, actually, I lived in Florida. I decided to come back through Chicago to locate him. So I brought the design with me to show him. I says, well, how are you doing? He says, I'm doing fine. He says, good to see you. I hadn't seen him for 20 plus years uh, or maybe slightly less, plus or minus. I says, well, I came to show you this building that I've been working on since I know I'm an architect. And he was just floored, amazed and astounded, one to see me, two, to see that I have pursued and successfully achieved my career. And after talking with his class of about, he was a printer, so after talking with his class of about maybe 15, 20 young people, he said to them, he says, I'm going to tell you about him after he leaves. <laughs> so that was really the last occasion that I got an opportunity to see him uh, alive. I then went back to the same school that he was teaching at doing that, my last visit to him, but he had passed some months before, and I never saw him again. I did speak with his wife very briefly, but she was about to leave town and go to live with her relatives. So, But that he, too, was one of my mentors because he gave me some insight as to what it was, why it was important to pursue the things that you decide to do. Now, the other person that influenced me greatly was my father, because it's from my father that I learned the value of principles. And he assisted me to understand the necessity that if I give my word, I must keep it. Um, if you like, I'll tell you a brief story about why of that. Um, my father and I, got separated when I was a fairly young man and I did not see him again until, oh, about 15 plus years later. And I had been, quote unquote, hoping to see him again. 
And I used to sometimes become very tearful in my thoughts about him because I considered us to be twins. And the reason for that was my father had two very basic things, policies that he would not change. One, he would not buy a vehicle off of the uh, floor room, off, out of the, off of the uh, store's floor room. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. He'd always order the car that he wanted with the colors and the interiors that he wanted and have it made. That was one thing he would do. The other thing he would do, he would never buy his dress clothes or suits off of the rack. He'd always have them made. Whenever he had a suit made, he also had one made for me. So thus we became twins. So I had a suit just like him and we walked down the street as twins. So he also <laughs> was the person who uh, influenced me in terms of understanding the right to the necessity to keep my word. And the story concerning that idea is that after we reconnected, I was about 20, 21 years old, and we would, I'd go talk to him, sit down and speak with him man to man. So we decided on one occasion to have dinner with our respective mates, his then wife and my then girlfriend. He wanted if I wanted to go to a Christmas dinner with him. So of course I do. And this again was in Chicago. By the time we had dinner and the evening pressed on and night began to uh, press us to make some decisions about what we we're going to do, he wasn't prepared to leave yet. I needed to get my then mate girlfriend back home. So I borrowed his car. And he says, well, no problem. It was about oh, 1030 at the time. I had to get her back home about 11. I said, well, you know, can I borrow the car? He said, yeah, sure. He says, now, but understand that you have to be back here by 12 o'clock. I said, okay, I think I can make it. But that was not true because in Chicago during the wintertime, it can snow without warning. So it did. And this was very heavy. It wasn't heavy, but it was wet sleet kind of snow which made it difficult to get from where I was, which is 50 or so blocks south to the west side of Chicago, uh, which is a little bit of distance, to say the least. So, but I thought I could make it initially. So when I got on the highway, it started snowing and it was wet. So it made driving as quickly as I thought I could, or as fast as I thought I could, a rather dangerous. But I did take her, drop her off. So I almost just put her out the car and <laughs> said I had to go get back on the highway to get back. When I got back, it was about, oh, 12, 10, 12, 15. So when I knocked on the door, I asked the host, says, my father, he says, no, he's gone. So, wow. So I had to jump back into the car, go back past where I had dropped my girlfriend out, several, eight or nine blocks past where she lived, which was not very far in that, but it was that distance. So when I got to the door, I said, Dad, how you doing? He said, I'm fine, son. I said, well, um, I, I got back around, oh, 12, 10, 12, 15. I said, well, my question was, which is obviously not very well thought out. I said, well, why'd you leave? He said, son, he says, I told you, if you were not back by 12 o'clock, I would be gone. And that's what I did. I said, okay, dad, and gave him his keys. Now, whenever I wanted to borrow his car, he'd only ask me one question. When are you going to come back? I'd tell him. And I was always back 10 to 20 minutes before the time that I had told him. So what I learned for that was one, to keep my word. Two, to keep my word to myself. 
and how important it was for me to be very definitive about what I would and would not do, particularly as related to my father. But it also taught me the lesson of keeping my word. So I learned that from my dad. So he was one of the ones also that influenced me greatly. Oh, wow. That is uh, fantastic. A, a little bit off script, but while I, you were telling that story, I, I remember telling you the other day, I was so kind of like upset with myself because uh, Dr. Richard Williams had passed. He wrote, uh, they stole it, but you must return it. And I was just mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, like no one knows. There's like no Wikipedia has worked all his life. And and, you know, the answer that you gave me, it kind of triggered a moment where I remembered one of my favorite movies was the, uh, you know, the Scrooge tale. I used to watch mm-hmm. it as a child all the time, you know, the, the ghost of Christmas past and kind of like seeing yourself in the past and the present and the future. And then mm-hmm. this this need to explain all the things that you were supposed to do and the purpose you were supposed to do. You didn't do them. You didn't do them correctly. And I would love for you to share that uh, th- this answer that you gave that just kind of gave me just a, a warm place when you talked about us being temporary, if you don't mind. Temporarily give me some more clues so I can recover. The well, I, I was upset that, you know, like this man has given so much of his life. He's worked with Martin mm-hmm. Luther King and Malcolm X and he's mm-hmm. done so much. And y- you said I shouldn't be upset because we're only here temporary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I would just like you to expound to the audience what that means. Well, let me let me read something else for you. Since you're, this touches upon that maybe to some degree, but I'll share this with you, okay? Uh, let me share with you pre-birth, okay? A little bit that might address some of that, okay? Taking on a body. There's a delightful and instructive wisdom in store when learning to master the limitations of the human body. I must learn the skills needed to use, to make use of arms, legs, eyes, fingers, and the brain. There are gifts opportunities for pre-borns as they become wrapped in matter and energy. It is these two elements that make up me, I-E-M-E, matter and energy, as an individual, to be visually recognizable as well as providing protection for what is to come while on earth. The body offers access to space and time, so we can utilize the created body to function on earth. Pre-borns know before becoming a me, that it, the body, is not permanent. Like each adventure I know, it is discarded at a future unexpected moment. In preparation for this time, I am gathering from the garden of imagination petals of infinite genius. I collect skills, talents, while making use of my mind's eye to see beyond the galaxies that are visible with human eyes. The eye of me has an unqualified capacity to reason and store information. I can absorb and store a zillion lifetimes and still have 10 zillion yottabytes of space. A yottabyte, by definition, is something 10 with 80 to the 80th power at my disposal. The postborn challenge is to master the skills to make use of this capacity. Preborns are hosted by great sources 
in a state of mind that is and is not, that is here and not here, and that has time and no time and no space. Preborn's ethereal beingness, meaning that that aspect of energy that makes you what you will become, that you are somewhere and also nowhere. A state of non-existence existence. We reside in an endless ocean of flowing effervescent stars cascading over unseen falls, flowing into liquid parades of galaxies. Each galaxy is an ocean flowing endlessly, pouring into bottomless vessels, each constructed by barriers that are visible, that are not visible, yet seen. All the while, these oceanic floors are but a dance in celebration for our departing and becoming post-born human beings. Now, when one decides through reluctance or through some set of circumstances to leave, because again, if you come, you must go. So when someone reaches a particular place in their person where they recognize that they're going to leave, the things that they've done are the contributions that they've made. Recognition of those things is not as important as having done them. So the persons who may need the recognition is not the person who's leaving, it is the people who see that he's gone. So actually, the whole process of leaving, concern about leaving, is for the living people. It's not for the person who decided to go. That person has done that which they can do and made the gifts that they can offer and offers those and says, here, I no longer have possession of it. You can take possession of it to the degree that you can and utilize it if that's something that you choose to do. So that person is offering those persons who are left a choice to look at, see, study, read, or understand what that person has left for them. But other than that, there's no overwhelming concern. Wow. Yeah, one of the things I said to you was, you know, when an old man dies, the library burns down, yeah? And so <laughs> it's like, you know, there's so much going. You, you, you know, I know they're working. They got the technology, that whole transhuman upload you to the cloud type of uh Yes, thing yes you know yeah. and you know would you be interested mm-hmm. in that would you like to be uploaded to the cloud no okay yeah i don't have any i don't how how could i not have an interest about something that how could i have an interest about something i know nothing about i dig that answer i really do i really do <laughs> right it's kind of like when they go and they study mm-hmm. the mummies right they they, they they're like take after they loot the loot the, well, the the tuts and stuff go ahead well here, here's something that's very powerful for me and this takes me back to my last visit to egypt uh, i spent a, a fair amount of time trying to get the other 30 something people to recognize that what you're seeing is going to be one overwhelming because there's nothing comparatively that you know of that will prepare you for what you're going to see now, though it might be ancient, i.e. it's been constructed a long time ago, there's nothing on the planet that will give you an understanding of what you're about to see. What you need to try to take a look at, particularly as African people, is take a look at the reasoning that created it. Because the reasoning that created it is what you want to know, because in that reasoning is the solution to the situations that you're experiencing now. It's not in the edifices and the stones that have been um, erected. I mean, we're talking about the pyramid 
that is made of stones that each of which might weigh 2,000 pounds or tons. Now, with that in mind, what you're going to see doesn't prepare you. Nothing that you have experienced is going to prepare you for what you're going to visit when you realize that every quote-unquote residence where that person's body is now waiting to live is designed so that there would be no visitors. It wasn't designed for entry. It was only designed for exit. The Great Pyramid is designed for exit, not for entry. When you crawl, when you, and you do have to sort of walk, they made it possible for you to get into the center of the pyramid. Uh, but you can't do that standing up. You really do have to crawl into the space because the entry place that you have to walk into, you have to get on your hands and knees in order to get into it because it only is about three feet or two and a half feet high for you to get inside of a room that's as large as the average living room, if not larger. And it's perfectly rectangular. It is perfectly rectangular. I mean, it's absolutely astounding to see what's been placed in the center of something that's 46 stories high and you're in the middle of it. And it had to be, that room had to be built before that pyramid on the exterior was completed. And there's also a sarcophagus, which you might call a like a coffin. But this thing is made out of a solid piece of granite carved out of a solid piece of stone that could not have been placed in there after it was built. It had to be placed in there while or before it was constructed because there's no way to get it in. Now, when you witness that, you learn some things, you see some things, you experience some things that doesn't, nothing in your present life will prepare you for that as a likelihood possibility. And there's nothing that you can say, wow, that's like, because it's not like anything else that you've ever witnessed or seen. So that makes you look at life and living in a completely different manner. Either that or you just fluff it off as a visit or a tour. Now, that's one thing. We also went to a place called Karnak. And Karnak has an exhibition building. And the center of that building is a model of the place that we're going to go into after getting outside of the pavilion. And the model is about a 60th of an inch, but the model covers most of the floor space in the pavilion that we're sitting in. So when you see that, the tour guide says to us, look, what you're going to go, what you can, you're going to walk onto an area that actually covers 200 acres of land. And this is paved over complete finished space covering 200 acres of land. But that's not what's important. What's important is that when you go to on this thing into this area, it took two thousand years to finish it from start to finish. It took two thousand years. Totally paved, totally finished, just like any building that you've ever seen. It's just absolutely magnificent. So what that says is the following: Whoever started it never finished it, never saw it finished. The transference of information and skills and talent had to be transferred generationally over a spirit of time, such that if Jesus Christ was born at the day that it was built or started to be built, it would only be 22 years old today. That's the time that it took. 
that's an amazing experience within the lifetime of what it means to leave something for someone and realize that you will never see it completed, but you're pushing it to get it done because it needs to be done. That is a totally different kind of understanding to see the, the mindset, the spirit, the energy behind the creation of the something is solution-oriented, and that is the something that African people specifically today must look at, not the something that's in front of them, but look at what is behind that reasoning that gave it possible for the reasoning to conclude something that could be completed and was completed and it's done over and over and over and over and over and over and over again over long periods of time. And this is just one location that I just mentioned to you in Karnak. This is one location. There are hundreds of things like that throughout African Egypt. Hundreds of them. In Sakura, there's a step pyramid. You go inside the Sakura pyramid, the burial area for the pharaoh is... 92 feet below the Sakura Pyramid. And the tomb, quote-unquote, his living space is still there, but it's 92 feet under the Sakura Pyramid. And the Sakura Pyramid is about 20 stories or better high. Wow, amazing. Now, this this makes me want to ask you, what, mm-hmm. what is the legacy you would like to leave behind? I was a nice guy. <laughs> we spoke about what the word nice means, you know. I, you, I know the etymology. You, you know the etymology of this. Well, I, I, I was concerned about the health and well-being and care of people, and I did those things and made it possible for them to achieve those things that they would most like to achieve. I love that. Tell them where to find you, your website, how to contact you. Again, uh, my phone is 702-325-5356. The foundation is called the Sons, S-U-N-Z Foundation. You can find that online. Um, the website itself is Sons, S-U-N-Z, as in zebra, S-S-A-M-H-I-P.org. And it gives a description of the program. It gives a description of what we do. It takes a lot, taken a lot of photographs over the years of young men who have completed the program, mentors and men who have worked with me to do it. It gives a curriculum of study. It tells you the structure of the organization. It tells you things about ethics, honor, responsibility, ethics, integrity, honor, responsibility, and accountability, which are those things, which are those qualities that a person must have or they're taught to have in order to be persons of great character. Now, the idea is the easiest thing to teach or train or get someone to understand is stuff that'll help them develop things, get things. I mean, it's easy to train you how to make money. That's that's easy to do. But if I have a person of character, then I have a quality of reliability and integrity that makes it possible for me to not only honor the person, but expect them to be responsible and be accountable for the things that they say and the things that they do. If we have account people who have ethics, integrity, honor, responsibility, and accountability, we have people who are rich in terms of their person. Then acquiring the things is easy because things are made, they break, they go out of fashion, they come in fashion. 
They can be painted, they can be changed, they can be repaired. But a person of ethical character is essential because as African people specifically, what has happened is that when we encounter things that are happening in the quote-unquote hood, our concern is are we meeting people that we can trust? Our children have to have fathers they can trust. Our sons have to have fathers that can give them examples of what it means to be men. Mothers are wonderful. They're nice. They do something extraordinary. There's a sacristy, a sacredness about the female that we must understand and honor. But mothers cannot raise men. Therefore, you're gifted with two parents, two, male and female. Energy flowing from both of them is different. And that difference makes a difference, particularly when a boy gets to be 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. He needs his father's direction. But the father has to be a person of character in order to train the young man to be a person of character. It is not good to say, just do as I say, not as I do. That's insane. Do what I do the way that I do it in the manner that I've taught you to do it and trained you to do it. That's a much more favorable and understanding, but you must be the example that you want others to follow. Therefore, your character must be firm because you are a, if you like, a living encyclopedia for your son and your daughter. Your daughter is going to choose a man based upon the example that she sees her father is or isn't. Your son is going to choose a wife based upon what his mother is or isn't. But more importantly, you have grandparents who are two sets of living encyclopedias there to train the boy that's just been born or the daughter that's just been born by his parents to go to them, the grandparents, the two sets of grandparents of living encyclopedias, to ask them about their father and mother. Why is that important? Because your father and mother cannot tell you how they were at 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 13 years old. Not only that, in many instances, they've very wonderfully and carefully forgotten <laughs> what they used to do. And therefore, they don't tell you, won't tell you, or they can't tell you. But the grandparents can. And that generational lineage gives the structure and the basis by which the stability of a community takes place. That is why it is said it takes a whole village to raise a child. Now, there's an idea called Ubuntu. Ubuntu. It means I am. Because you are. Therefore, the you of you is as important than the me of me. In Jamaica, there's a term that's used, a phrase that's used, it's called I and I. It says, in essence, that there's no difference, in essence, between I and I. You are me, I am you. So I and I must be able to interact with each other in such a way that our care for each other is germane to making sure that we are okay. Now, that same thing ought to exist between mates. If you are contributing and I am contributing, we both are contributing, then the confusion that results from, i.e., selfishness would not exist. But it's about complementality and contribution. Now, sometimes that's difficult and it's hard because we've learned badly in this country. We've learned abusively in this country. We've learned to be abusive in this country. We've learned to be selfish in this country. We've learned that it's actually okay to be an individual. Because you contribute to the well-being and sanity of another person doesn't take away your individuality. In fact, the opposite is true. It contributes to your individuality because you can deliver and you will keep your word. You are a person that's whole, i.e. with integrity. That being so, the result is you can take responsibility and you will always be accountable 
for the things that you do and that you say. That stability is very, very, very important. Now, to be an architect, an engineer, or even a police officer or an aircraft pilot or manufacturer, doesn't matter because we have a good person. We have a person of quality doing those services and delivering those services. But if I got a scoundrel, he can have a lot of skill. He's a liar. He's a criminal. I can't trust his judgment. Why? Because he doesn't have a sense of ethics, integrity, honor, responsibility, and accountability. Now, I was going to say, you're saying this, right? And Brother O.C. Burton, shout out to O.C. Mm-hmm. Burton, the second kid shop mm-hmm. guy, uh, mm-hmm. he, he had said those points. Are we born with that? Is that something that's poured into us? That's why I so, I don't mean to seem like a jerk. It just seems well, like not everyone gets it. O.C. has worked with me for more than five years. He's a very close friend and a very close to me as a brother. So it, it took the work that it took to try to get those things understood. He got it. And now he says to me, well, is it okay that I use it? Of course it's okay to use it. Why? Because it is to be used. That is what it's for. Character development is character development. It doesn't matter who it comes from. If you understand what ethics are, and there's a whole body of information related just with that one word. If you understand what integrity is, and there's a whole body of information related to that word. There's a whole body of material related to honor and responsibility and accountability. Now, I'll give you an example just as an illustration. In the word responsibility are two words. One is respond, which means to act or react. Ability is having the knowledge is necessary and required to be able to act and react. So responsibility is a composite of an idea, a thought, and equality of energy that says that anything that you know, you can take responsibility for it. You can do it. What you don't know, you can't take responsibility for it. It is one of the most ignorant, dumb, asinine statements to say that ignorance of the law is no excuse. That's insane. How can you do something that you don't know what it is? If you go to China today or Yugoslavia today, if you don't know the laws, you're likely to violate some. And to say to you, The fact that you violated the law is not an excuse. Not knowing the law is no excuse for breaking the law. That's a rather European sideways new person stupidity that doesn't make any sense at all. And therein force lies the problem. You can only take responsibility for something you know. Why? Because you know something, therefore you can exercise the necessary skills or avoidance of something in order to ensure that you don't violate it. You see? Now, it may mean that, in fact, if you do something that you don't know, you're going to suffer from what you don't know. You can't fly. So what you don't do is jump off of a bridge. The law of gravity is not going to be forgiving to you. Therefore, in that case, ignorance of the law is no excuse for, what, dying? Well, yeah. But at the same time, if you're taught the principles of gravity, you're not likely to jump off unless there's a willful desire to leave the planet. So what I'm saying to you, each of those words have embodied in them a whole system of thinking, a whole line of reasoning of thinking, which is critical. So if you utilize them, you must also be able to train people in those areas in such a way that the result will be that they will have integrity. They will have ethics. They know how to practice what is necessary to be an ethical person. They know how to respond. They know what is required to get the abilities, the skills that are necessary. 
they can be accountable for one because if you give your word to me the first person that you give your word to is you not me if you break your word to yourself it's highly likely you'll break it to other people but you must treasure you enough with integrity or sure that what you say you will do it that is what integrity means in a larger framework so yes my dear brother uh does his work well that's the best i can say yes he does yes he does you know while you were saying that a little bit off topic off script is that you know one of my uh, issues that uh -hmm. i i I am personally working through with family everybody listening whatever uh Mm -hmm. is that a lot of times i I, too, am like your father because my grandmother did tell me if you say something, you have to keep your word, right? Your word is your bond, and this is just the way it is. And a lot of times I will come across uh, uh, a few people where I would kind of say, well, you know, uh, I know Bob over there, and Bob says that, you know, he could do that for us. And then if Bob doesn't do it now, it falls on me. It falls yes. on me and then they get upset with me. And a lot of yes. times I'm like, I can only control me, but it's, 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 it's one of the, it, and I said, sometimes it's heartbreaking. And a lot of times I, I find myself backpedaling to see what I can do, what I can do, what I can do. And then realizing it's a one way street. Well, in that is the idea that one wants to have an affirmation that if they take on the responsibility to recommend another person, that they know that that other person is solid. They will do. They have a high degree of integrity. That they will do what they say they will do, and therefore you can recommend that they do the something. So the unity of a community has to do with getting that entire community to function as one people, as one mind, as one body. Now, when that's true, you don't have any doubts about Hassan or Patrice or Kwame. You don't have any doubts about those things. Why? Because they deliver what they say. Because you then can embrace the quality of the human being as if you were them and they were you. They won't take your word unless they know or take a word unless they know the person who is giving that word. There's no doubt about it. There's no ethics doubt. There's, see, in ethics, there's an there's a area in ethics that's called doubt, meaning that you're not sure. You don't know which one to do, which one not to do. But if you have a firm understanding, that person is a person of high degree of integrity. That person won't give you a word or won't say they can do something that they cannot. They'll tell you, I can't do it. They'll say, I don't know how to do it. Or I will refer you to someone who I know will and can do it. One only can they do it, they will actually do it. If they give you their word, you can count on it. That means that that person is giving you assurance that they will do what they say. And you can be assured that they will do what they say. That assurance is also insurance in that they will deliver. That is a kind of mindset and understanding that cooperates and interrelates and interconnects, so there's no difference between what the person say they will do and the fact that you can trust that it'll be done. If they said they'll do it, count on it. That's what you want. That is a community of like minds who are working for the benefit of the children and the families and the husbands and the wives, and you can trust 
your mate with your best friend. There's not going to be any problem. You can trust your, your best friend with your mate. Those are the kinds of relationships that you want to develop. And those things comes out of those five characteristics that I mentioned to you. Well, so now let's change piece a bit. And we're yes. going to play rapid fire. Yes. I hope you're ready. <laughs> I'll do my best. Okay. Insurance or money under the mattress? <laughs> I don't have a third choice. <laughs> oh, you can make up your own. You can make up. This is your world. <laughs> okay. Would I get insurance or make up keep my money under the mattress? That's an interesting question for me because I tend not to think in things of that kind. Um, <laughs> insurance or money in the mattress. I'm a practical person. So it, it would depend upon the circumstances of which I felt I was under in order to assure that I needed to accomplish something. One, I would not logically put my money under the mattress. But two, I'm not a person who necessarily looks at insurance as being assuring. Uh, but an insurance is normally for those who are going to remain alive. <laughs> That's, if I needed a situation where, where I needed currency or some resource to achieve something, I would want to make sure I had access to that something. So it would depend on the circumstances for me. I respect that. TV... Okay. TV or music? Music. Meat or vegetables? Vegetables. Holidays or birthdays? Birthdays. Dine out or cook in? Cook in. Do you have a favorite meal? No. Is there a favorite song you have or a favorite genre of music? Jazz. Do you have a favorite book? 2000. You said you have about 2,000 books. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I do have about 2,000 books. Yeah, I do actually have more. Um, the, 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 one of the best books that I've ever read is 2,000 Seasons. It is a very small book written by a brother by the name of Kwame Ama. He's a Senegalese. Uh, the book may be less than 100 pages, but it was the most difficult book for me to read not because of the vocabulary, but because of the intensity and quality of, of delineation that he did, talking about the demise of African people and what was the thing that caused that. That was very, very powerful. I could only read the book for maybe about a half an hour, and I had to stop and then put it down and then come back to it later. So it took me about a month to read, about a month or more to read the book, not because of the, the, uh, the number of pages, but because of the intensity of, emotion that was awakened as a result of his writing. Now, do you have a favorite movie? Favorite movie? No. Do you have a favorite documentary? No, because I, I watch a lot of documentaries and have watched a lot over the years, and I usually am after them learning for specific purposes, and sometimes there's a stream of things that happen. I'll watch something, something will come out, and that documentary just catches my attention, and I'll do some research about that subject and came in that documentary. So I might end up watching four or five or six documentaries that were motivated to me watching one. Hmm. Very nice. Oh, very good. Sorry. <laughs> Superpowers you wish you had. If I could assist people to make it okay with them to be better people, and I had some way of influencing that so that they were controlling it, not me. 
I would do that. If I could reveal to them those things that I know that they're capable of doing through some kind of process of, of super, super capabilities, I would love to have that. Wow. If you could come back to this place, would you be a tree, a mountain, volcano, or an animal? Tree. Huh. Very nice. Do you have a favorite color? Black. Favorite hobby? Favorite hobby. Architecture comes to mind. Reading. Probably reading more than anything. Did you have a favorite show as a child? Favorite show as a child? Yeah. A favorite show as a child. Mm. One show that comes to mind as a result of that question, there was a, there was a, a program on TV, and this is when TVs were black and white, and the guy was, there was a program called Mr. Wizard. And Mr. Wizard was a science program where he would show children the simplicity of science. And he would just do wonderful experiments and show you that you can do them and just really expose children to science. It's called Mr. Wizard. That was that comes to mind. And I see if I could check that out. That sounds so dope. Beach or pool? Beach. I like the space, the land. Even though when I my wife always wants me to go to the beach, but on those occasions, I, I like the beach. I like I do like to swim. I do like the beach. The beach requires participation in the beach uh, because it's it's alive. The beach is alive. And usually when we go to some place where there is a beach, I have to be concerned about securing <laughs> the things that we own. And she, of course, is prepared to go swimming, but we're in a foreign country like we're in Cuba. And it's a beautiful beach. But I can't leave all of our all of our goods and money and passports and stuff on the beach. So she becomes a little annoyed because I won't get in the water. But it's not that I don't like the water. It's that I have to be concerned about our security. But I prefer the beach because I'd like to have a beachfront, uh, enough beachfront land that I could walk on it for a couple of days and it still be mine. I'd love, <laughs> love that. Well, it doesn't help that, you know, when you grow up in America, right? America will teach you. <laughs> it'll set you straight. And when you go somewhere else, you, you, you know what to do, manners and everything. Right, right, right. Uh, action or comedy? Comedy. I love comedy. Um, just m- much of it's just very poorly done. <laughs> but, I, uh, but I love comedy. I do watch a lot of action material only because the comedies are not usually very well done. They're not as well done and thought out as are um, action movies. Shower or bath? Bath. Love or money? Love. Love or respect? Respect. Well, I know this answer, but we're going to say it anyway for shits and giggle. Reading or watching TV? (laughs) Reading. Sunrise or moonlight? Sunrise. Friendship forever or a love of your life short-lived? Love of my life short lives or friendship forever. Friendship forever. A pet peeve you have. A pet peeve I have. Being misunderstood. A fear you wish you could vanquish from humanity. Um, hunger. You step into a time portal. 
what mm-hmm. year would it be? And would you save anyone or change anything or just be an observer? The year I would, if I could step back in the time portal, would be those years with my dad, with my father. And I would be a participant with my father. Wow. Three people you wish you could meet and pick their brain. They could be celebrities. They could be living. They could have passed on. They could not exist in the future sometime. Or they could be present. Just three people. My great-grandfather or my great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, and my father. What would you tell yourself as a teen or a little boy if you had to time travel back to yourself? Be observant. Now, would you know what that meant? You're a little boy and this man comes up to you and he says, be observant, and you just go away? Would you know? Mm -hmm. Pay attention. Yeah. Now, what do you desire for your life and your legacy? Let's speak that into existence. What do I desire for? Is this for me or for others? What are we speaking? It's for you. These are your flowers. I've got a bed of roses. There's some dandelions over there. There's some hyacinths over there. This is for you. That my wife specifically have a clearer understanding of, with clarity, my intentions as it specifically relates to helping her understand things. And the contributions therein. Um, yeah, that would be helpful. And I would like to thank you for playing Rapid Fire. <laughs> okay. uh, tell them where to find you, your website, your number, how to contact you. Okay, again, my name is Yusef Suda. That's S-U-D as in David, A as in Alice, H as in Henry. Phone number seven zero two three two five five three five six. Leave me a message. Uh, I don't normally pick up my phone with numbers that I don't, I can't identify because I get so many calls from persons who want to sell me stuff. <laughs> so if they leave me a message, I'll get back to them. But I will get back to you, specifically if it relates to the things that we've talked about here. I, our website is sons, S-U-N-Z, as in zebra, S as in Sam, H. Henry, I, Ida, P. Paul, dot org. Fantastic. Now, you gave us some excerpts from your book. Would you turn mm-hmm. your book into a movie? Would you like to see that unfold? I have a friend of mine who's a cinematographer who suggested I should do that. It would be fun. I, I would love to see how it could be done. In light of the subject matter, um, particularly the esoteric parts of it in terms of pre-birth and subsequent births and the idea of pranksters influencing the quality of thinking of people on the planet to improve the quality of their behavior uh, in this body of material is, is pranksters. And some of those pranksters, there is uh, illusion and there is truth. And they're both are playing the same game, but in opposite directions. Both are here to assist people to become better people and help them mature by the, through the process of learning and gaining knowledge. So it's sort of like uh, you slip and you fall. Well, it certainly is not a desirable experience, but you do learn from the slip or the fall not to have it happen again. So if you're walking on ice, you walk more carefully. If you're walking on tar, you walk more carefully. You slip on oil, you're likely to do something different. But in that is a lesson. 
So in everything that we do, our lessons. So uh, the ideas are there to assist the person to become better. Now, how you translate that in a movie fashion, I'm not sure, but I'm sure there are good uh, there are men who are good producers, directors, and creators that would allow that to happen. So it might be fun to see it done. Yes. Now, has it always been a challenge for you to kind of juggle being an entrepreneur, businessman, architect, and family? How's that been for you? Uh, time is always a problem. Uh, when, I, when I studied architecture, for example, and I had three children and I was married, uh, that was a task. Um, because you need more time. And you don't really know how important you are as a father until your son says something to you that you have somehow let him down because you weren't present for something that you promised him that you would do. That's, that is, it's trying for you because you know that your son remembers that. And I've had that happen um, with me, with one of my sons. And he just sat on the stairs waiting for me. His, his mother told me later, he sat on the st- stairs waiting for me and I didn't show and I had to, I had to really clean that up with him. And he, he was hurt very, 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 very much. And it took a while for me, A, to know that it had happened because I had forgotten I just got involved in something and I told him I'd be there in a minute and I didn't. And so things like that are very important in terms of making sure that you can keep your word and your children are your children and they care about you with a quality that you don't know as you cared about your father and mother that they didn't know. So things of that kind. Do you have any regrets in life? No. You're just so unapologetic about that. I love it. No. Mm -hmm. Now, were there any hard lessons in life for you to learn as, as you've been on this planet? You know, the, the most difficult, and this what comes to mind when you ask the question is breathing. <laughs> oh, please, please break it down for the people. Yeah, um, it's just not that the mechanics of taking a breath is difficult or the exhaling and inhale is difficult. It is maintaining the sense of person so that as you're doing that, you're continuously contributing to your life and living, not only to yourself, but to others. So you're always participating in something. You're always taking in something, taking out, leading something out. And in order to do that, you must remain alive. You must remain astutely clear of what you're doing, how you're doing it, and the decisions that you make. So breathing becomes an exercise in and of itself to maintain you. Not the body, but you. There's a difference between the body and you. So you must know that difference and function with that difference. But you can't be you can't be accessible if the body is not well, or at least less accessible. Now, tell tell us what does life mean to you? A game. It's a game of participation with the idea that it's actually okay to participate. In the book, I talk about the fact that the rigorous training to become a postborn is a challenge for you because you must participate in a game and you must be trained to carry out that game, but make it okay for you to play the game because you can't stay. You can't take this game seriously. This is a joke. Okay. Here's what, now let me say, explain that. When you take, it's like if, if you try to take a comedy and look at it as a drama, you're going to make a tremendous error in judgment. 
If you take a drama and try to treat it like a comedy, it's a tremendous error. Well, here, you know that you decided to come now. I've explained that as best I could. You know that if you came, you got to go. So if you come, you got to leave. So how can you take something seriously that, in fact, is so temporal? You know you can't stay. So why are you going to be upset with it? Why are you going to be bothered by it? Why are you going to regret it? Why are you going to participate in it with anger and pain and suffering? You don't have to do that. Look at it that whatever you're encountering, it is part of the lessons that you must learn in order to get to the comedy that you decided to participate in. Because at one point, the one thing is sure, you're going to leave. You cannot stay. So it's laughable to believe that somehow you need to be angry about nothing. So that's what you're going to be. You're going to be angry about nothing. Now, but you can't, you can't make it permanent. Now, would you, do you have advice for anyone interested in writing a book? Like, what can you tell them? Because you've been writing your book for... 35 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. advice for the, for the book writers. Decide to do it and persist at it. And learn. Improve your skill of writing. Improve your skill of explaining things. Understand the language that you're going to use. Understand the words within that language you're going to use. Be very careful in your understanding of grammar. It does play a part in your ability to articulate a point of view. Be very clear about clear thinking, reasoning that you utilize to explain the things that are there. Try to make it easy for the reader to understand what you're saying. Understanding is the key to getting the reader to understand the something that you want them to understand. Therefore, they have to be able to stand under that which you say by you making it possible for them to clearly understand, thereby know, and experience the something that you're explaining. So the onus is on you to get across the ideas that you have. Okay. Now, yeah, you know, we, we live on the same planet. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Look at me. Yeah. Like, I'm so excited. But how have you... <laughs> Have you found growth in, in, in the 2020 debacle of the quarantine? Did it affect your business? Uh, did, were you able to kind of grow differently, figure it out, or just kind of go, mm-hmm. well, damn. Yeah, I, I took advantage of not having to do something I didn't want to do. One of the things I don't want to do, I don't want to die. Okay? I don't want my body to get ill. So one way to master a disease is don't get it. Just don't get it. It has nothing to do with you going to get shots. It has nothing to do with you being in quarantine. It has something to do with deciding it's actually okay not to participate in something that you know is going to be difficult if, in fact, it is that confusing for people. A disease is confusing for people. A virus is confusing for people because it is not something that's not alive. The opposite is true. If you make yourself available to it, you become its host body, it is going to do what it does. What is that? It is going to seek to live. And it will absorb everything from your body in order for it to maintain the life that, in fact, it is found. So what do you do? You do not give your you do not make yourself accessible to it. Now, that being case, do the things that make use of your time, make use of your efforts, your energy, your time, your learning. Do something to participate in your life in a fruitful manner while that something is going on. That's what I've done. All right. Now. A little bit off script. Uh, while you were saying that, I was—I just wanted to ask you, and it, it, you let me know if this mm, go ahead. works for you in your mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The word consent, because a lot of consensual, non-consensual things were happening 
on the globe or flat earth. Mm -hmm. I don't want to offend mm -hmm. anyone, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. how does consent and the universe work? If you had Choice. to see it. Choice. You can, you, 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 logically, you don't want to do things that are not your choice to do. Now, you can infuse choice upon people by forcing them. You can do things, get people to consent to make a choice between living or dying. Therefore, they are likely to make a choice to live if they have the choice of either doing this or doing that. Thereby, they give consent to participate in something that ordinarily they would not. That can happen. But that's a choice that you have to make facing that particular situation. And only you can make that decision at the moment in time that is presented to you under the circumstances under which it is presented. But it's still the choice. The African people, particularly, we, <laughs> many of us, many of our ancestors coming across the, from the doors of no return across the Atlantic Ocean chose not to participate in the possibility of being enslaved. So they jumped over the side. Okay, so they wouldn't give consent to participate. So they made the choice not to participate, but that's something just meant that they were willing to let the body go so as not to allow the body to be enslaved, etc. Now, once getting here, we, some of us decided, well, we're going to try to get through this. So we gave consent to participate in it. But that's a choice. But the choice can certainly be one difficult to make depending upon the circumstances upon which you need to make that choice, i.e. give consent to something. You know, th th this makes me want to ask you. Can, Please. Is this the same as free will? Yeah. And you believe that all purposes, every being, every being, mm -hmm. not just talking about us walking and talking, every mm -hmm. being has free will or mm -hmm. it is just human beings well no every being can make a choice and does make a choice to do or not do something that their attention grabs or they turn their attention toward a grass a blade of grass has intention that's why you can see walking down the street sometimes you see concrete polarized with a blade of grass or blades of grass pushing through it that's pure intent that's pure consent to do that that's pure choice Pure choice. That's the purest form of choice that you can see. You, you talk about the idea of, a, uh, there's this saying, um, there's a mustard seed saying, I can't think of the particular ad adage in which it says, but a mustard seed is a very, 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 very tiny seed. I recently posted on my page a, mustard, a picture of a mustard seed laying on a penny. The penny is a thousand times larger than a mustard seed. But the mustard seed has pure intention. It knows what it is going to do. A mustard seed, and I talk about this as well in the book, a mustard seed is programmed to do exactly what it does. It's not going to do anything different. Every seed on the planet is programmed to do exactly what it does. A sequoia tree will not produce papaya. It will not. So knowing what it knows is going to do what it's supposed to do. The same thing is true with every animal, whatever, whatever, whatever. Its intention is to survive, and it does those things as necessary to carry out the purpose upon which it comes. And it does it very skillfully. The choice of men, man, human beings, is that they can selectively do things differently 
because they have to learn. Knowledge is essential to human beings. Essential. That's why we read books. That's why we fly thousand tons of steel in the air and float the same thousand tons of steel on an ocean. Because that's pure intent. That's pure understanding, knowledge, and what to do with those things that are available to them to do. That's something with. The principles there in lie makes it possible for them to interpret those principles, re-examine them, and do things with it that ordinarily someone, something that doesn't have that capability cannot do that. So we have an unlimited capability. That capability that we have is there to assist us to mature. But as I said on the program that you uh, showed, you, you sent me a copy of a, the young brother I was speaking with on your show before, I saying to him, there's a difference between technology and people. People haven't progressed in terms of the clarity of thinking for thousands of years. They still think pretty much the same way. But they do have the ability, the capability of creating extraordinary things. But as people, they still think pretty much the same way in their relationships with each other. That's, that's flawed reasoning. This is poor reasoning. We can do better things with technology than we can with our relationships with people. That there's a there's a there's a pitfall there in terms of how we rationalize our behavior with other people. Right. And so this this always leads me back to the children because I always say, oh, I can't fix no big people, you know. They're big already. They know everything, even if they know nothing. <laughs> are we are are we failing our children? Are our yes. children failing because of us, the things we're yes. doing? I want you to go into we're that. Failing, we're failing our children because we put the emphasis in the wrong area. We push our children to get work, to get a job, rather than develop sense and integrity and honor. That's, that's the difference. I care about my sons and my daughters because I expect them to be people who are persons with those five things and more. Okay, what job they have, I don't care. I have a son who's an electronic engineer. What does that got to do with being a human being? I have another son who, after many years of study, he wants to go back and study architecture. That's fine. I have a son who's a, who patterned some of his behavior after me because I, at an earlier time in my life, I was managing a fair amount of property. So he decided he wanted to be a property manager. But I expect my son to be a human being that's a person that interacts with me as a father with honor and responsibility and a sense of integrity. That's more important to me than whatever he does. Because if that's not true, then the rest doesn't matter. It's just garbage. There was something on here that I wanted to ask you about, which was there's a model that you mm -hmm. had on your website. Mm -hmm. You never fail you either succeed at succeed success, success or you succeed at failure. failure. You never, you never truly fail. Whatever your intentions are, that's what you would achieve. That's why the mob, very well known in New York, if you like, succeeds at it does. That's why good people lose and dishonorable people win because they turn their attention to achieve the something that they have in mind. The universe doesn't care what your decisions are. It doesn't care. It doesn't evaluate those decisions as being right or wrong. Whatever you turn your mind toward, you can succeed at it. If you want to be a criminal, you're very good at it. Ask Donald Trump. He's very good at it. Okay, you want to be president. He was the president. He's a poor president. 
is a poor human being. So the quality of his person as a person shines through to people that got sense and can see it, except for those who want to be in his stead. They want to be like him. And they want his, 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 uh, what can we say? His blessings. So yeah. Okay. Think about this. There, there are two immortals that most people are aware of because if they have a religious bent, they are aware of two immortals. One is their view. One is God and the other one is devil. Right? Those are both immortals. Okay. There are, there, there's information that states the following, that the morning star, which is the devil, was one of God's premier angels. He was the angel of angels. He broke up with God. Now, there's a lot of stories about the reason for that. If you want to read an interesting book, read Letters from the Earth by Mark Twain. Wonderful book. Okay. Great book. Now, but there are two immortals. One is the devil, one is God. Now, here's a question that your audience can ask itself. For those who believe everything that the Bible says, or everything that the Quran says, or everything that the Torah says, two things that happen. All three of those books embrace slavery. He's one of them. Because they all come from the same line of reasoning. Each of them. Number one. Number two. How many people have the devil killed or is responsible for the death of in each one of them? How many? That's one question. Second question is, how many deaths are God responsible for in each one of them? Think about that. Look at it, ask the question, and get the answer for yourself. Wow. It tells you a lot if you look at it. Now, if the devil kills, and note again, check the book. See how many books, see how many people, devil or iblis or <laughs> that person who's as cited as the evil immortal, see how many people that person is actually in at the death of. Then go back and look at the other one that says this is a blessing. So how could the death by one be considered a curse and their death by the other be considered a blessing. Well, being that I'm from New York, I would say that is not my department, sir. Uh, you will have to call this 1-800. <laughs> okay. My point is, is that the things that you've been taught are the things that you've accepted having been taught them, but you haven't given any thought to them. And when that's true, obviously you're confused. And if you're confused, your ethics are horrible. You don't know where you are because confusion is nothing more by definition is knowing, not knowing where you are. That's all. That's all it is. And confusion is very, 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 very low on the ethics scale. Very low. Mm. Now, before we leave out, is there anything you would like to, anyone you'd like to shout out, anyone that support you, has been supportive to you, your family, your friends, your children, uh, a message to your great-great-grandchildren when they listen to this in the ethers, whatever you want to say. Well, I, I, I recognize this. I'll, I'll read something to you if I have the, the time to do this. You have, okay? you have all the time in the world with me, brother. We, we good. <laughs> okay. I, I've written about this a bit 
in the material of um, dedication. I'll read this to you. This is the dedication of this book that we've been talking about. I dedicate this notebook telling of my choice to die to come to earth to my 11 children, nine sons, two daughters. I lost my oldest daughter, Monica, while writing on this publication in 2019. I miss her. She left and I did not get a chance to say goodbye. Each of my children's mother are queens of beauty and love, but their greatest gift are our children, the Grand Eleven. The Grand Eleven will have offsprings, few of which I may never see. They will be the grandest of children of many generations. Their children and their children's children are not mine to witness in human form. Though I cannot stay, I will be watching over them from the palatial palace while playing in my living galaxy. I would love to hear the tiny vibrations of their new voices while running at play. Although I no longer be on earth, they remain my responsibility to guard and protect. They are the genesis of many families. Their training does not end with my departure. I will oversee the future as an ancestor or their future as an ancestor. My present queen, Matisha, Amur Rahman, was on the earth 16 years when I began this notebook. Thank you. It is, it was her help that allowed me to finish writing this game after 35 years from 2000, sorry, from 1987 to the year 2002. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. I thank you. I thank you for being just so amazing, authentic. I am so grateful that, uh, Mr. O.C. Burton II has connected us. Uh, nothing happens by, you know, accident or coincidence. You know, I truly believe it is not a, uh, <laughs> it's a small world. But I mean, as, yes. as, as, as a child, I was, I'm going to take over the world. And then one day I, I saw the universe and the galaxies and the Milky Ways and I said, I'm thinking too small. <laughs> Right, and so that that might just be something in my bloodline. Somebody probably ruled something somewhere. That's why I'm thinking like that. Most people, I want to take over the world. I'm like the world. Like what? Don't you know? Like we're like specks of dust right now. Small place. I tell you, I tell you, and I am grateful. Tell them where to find you before we head out. Again, Yusef Suda. 702-325-5356. Webpage, sons, S-U-N-Z-S-H-I-P dot org. Sons Foundation. Please take a look. Call me. I'll see if I can help. Do you have a donation? A donation link, Cash App, PayPal? I, I do. Um, I, I will be running the, the better thing for me to do. If you go to my page, you can find me on Facebook. I am on Facebook, Yusef Suda. I have three items on there. I do have the sons program on there. There will be a fundraiser that's being run sometimes very shortly so that that can be done cleanly without any interference. And I will post that or I'll make it available when we talk again. 
Awesome. We're going to put all that in the description while you're listening, whether it's on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, OTW Tube. We'll put that in the description and you won't miss it, y'all, because you can always, while he's here, you can check it out. And even after he's not here, you can still check it out. Well, I do thank you. And I'm a little lost for words, which is uh, not unusual. But I want to thank you for the kindness and the graciousness that you've shown and you're originating this idea that as of yesterday that we can do this today. I do appreciate it and I thank you for being you. Yeah, a bit spontaneous. Sometimes it doesn't work out too well, you know, but this was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> thank this, you again. This was awesome. And I thank you. Uh, you're listening to The Hour, your host, Cindy Ashby, uh, signing for OTW Tube dot com and uh thank you for listening and i dedicate this song to you sir all right thanks thanks for keeping the lights on dn on the wake up. Just get your body to move. Won't stop till you shake the room, yeah. Just get your body to move. Why do I need to? Why do I need to? Let on the wake up play. Won't stop till they hear what we say, yeah. Let on the wake up play. Why do I need to? Just get your body to move Won't stop till we shake the room, yeah